kids had been playing instruments and singing and taking voice lessons and had their whole lives devoted to music since about the age of three or four. I didn't start that early. So I had a little bit of a late start when it came to music. And here I was in this school that was all about music. And I was surrounded by this enormous amount of talent. And suddenly, I was invisible. I watched as my friends were promoted to leading sections in the, or in the orchestra, praised by my teachers and given the bus solos, while I silently coordinated the more invisible things, like plotting out where people would sit in the orchestra, folding bulletins, and keeping the buses headed the right direction on the freeway <laughs> while we were on tour. I didn't get a lot of affirmation, mainly because I don't think people really knew what I was doing behind the scenes. They didn't know all of what I was doing to make the tour run or to make the music happen because I wasn't one of the main musicians. But um, I knew I was just out of the spotlight, just off stage, where I could see everything clearly, but they couldn't see me. You know, the inevitable result of feeling <laughs> invisible is wishing you were visible. And I was at the point where I would have given almost anything to be something. Then one day, during one of our concerts, as I was backstage, I heard one of my classmates get up to sing. And these are the words of the song that he sang. And it hit me. Starts out, in the harvest field, now ripened, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. The chorus says, little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. So the title of my sermon this morning is Little is Much. This song really impacted me. As I was back there doing my little duties and feeling like a nobody, an invisible disciple, this song spoke to me that if God is in it, little is much. And it dawned on me that even when it seems that not a person on the planet cares that I exist or even notices what I'm doing, that we have a friend with special vision. Amen. He sees us even when we are invisible. That's pretty neat. I want to turn to Mark together, the book of Mark. Mark chapter 12. And starting in verse 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. Now the mite was the smallest of coins in that time. It was made out of brass and estimated to be worth about a fifth of a penny. It would seem as if this widow's two mites were so small, she might as well have put in nothing. 
That's how worthless it was. Besides, who was really going to take note of her contribution when the scribes were pouring in their coins by the sackful? But here's where the story takes a shift, and we get a glimpse into the heart of God. Because in verse 43, he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow who has put in, has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Wow. God's math is sure different than ours, isn't it? He says these two mites were worth more than all of the other money that was in the treasury that all the other people had put in. Probably, I don't know how to estimate. It doesn't tell us how much that was. Millions and millions, maybe billions of dollars or whatever they called them then. It's a lot of money. Shekels, other kinds of coins. There were probably some other mites in there too. But these widows, two mites, each one worth about a fifth of a penny was more. Little is much when God is in it. She gave all that she had. She gave it out of worship for her creator. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were putting their money in out of display, out of a love for what people thought of them. They were visible and they loved it. She was invisible. She probably didn't even enjoy that place where she was. Um, maybe she thought, I wish I could give more. I wish I could do more. I wish there was more I could do for my maker. But he said that she did more than any of the other people there. That's, that story just um, always makes me ask myself, when was the last time I gave my two mites to Jesus? When was the last time I gave my all? It may not be much, but God doesn't measure things like we do. His math is so radically different. He works on multiplication. We work on addition. He creates things out of nothing. We can't do that. We have to have building blocks in order to make something else, but he can create out of what we call thin air, which is a miracle, and he can do this in our lives too, even when we cannot see what he's doing. He's working, and in his eyes, you are more precious to him than you might have imagined, even if you are invisible. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 12, <coughs> and starting in verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole 
were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? It goes on to say, if now indeed there are many members, yet one body, and the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. That wouldn't make sense. We all need each other. Some of us may be hands, some of us may be feet, some of us might be kidneys or something else, but we are all important parts of the body, the body of Christ. And in this church, each one of us has a special work to do. Paul goes on to say um, down below, which I won't read all of that, that the invisible parts are even more valuable, even more important than the visible ones. The internal organs, like your heart and your nervous system, your circulatory system, your kidneys, you're, you're going to have a hard time living without those parts of your body. If you have to amputate a hand or a foot, you'll probably be okay after a bit of recovery. But those invisible parts, the things inside of you, I can't see your kidneys, thankfully, but they are doing an important work in your body right now. So these invisible parts, Paul says, are even more important in many cases than the visible parts of the body. So why is it so hard to be content with being invisible? I think because the more invisible one is, the more they covet those that are visible. The more that they want to be like the famous or the rich or their friends that are always in the spotlight. And this is part of Satan's grand plan to distract, distract us and separate us from Christ. If he can distract us from the vertical, our connection with Christ, then um, he's got us in his clutches. So we have two connections. We have the horizontal connections with each other, which are very important. And then we have that vertical connection with God. And the devil is always seeking to distract us with the horizontal because he can get our gaze off of Christ. So this is an area that I have struggled with a lot personally, getting distracted with those around me, getting distracted with those people in my family or my friend group that seem to be happier or doing well or making more money at their job or whatever it may be. But in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thou shalt not covet. Where is that found in the Bible? In the Ten Commandments. Excellent. Now, if God inscribed those words with his finger on stone, do you think they're pretty important? Thou shalt not covet. I think that's a pretty important command. And sometimes this is something I forget. I think, well, I am not, didn't murder anybody this week, and I didn't, you know, dishonor my mother or <laughs> one of these other ones. But what about coveting? This is when it starts to hit home a little more. When 
have we looked at other people and said, well, why did they get all the attention and I'm invisible? My work is so small. It might as well just stop. Like the widow, we might think, it's so small, why don't I just not put anything into the offering? Thou shalt not covet. And it's interesting to me that in Hebrews chapter 13, this verse I just read, it's, it links not coveting with contentment in Christ's presence. What a fascinating connection. That if we're not wanting to be coveting other people's positions or belongings or talents, the opposite of that is contentment in Christ's presence. If we are aware, truly aware, that Christ is with us and he's not leaving anytime soon, why would we be discontented with where he has placed us and where we are at? Let's turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 and verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Is the psalmist saying to trust in ourselves? No. What about trust in others? No. Trust in the Lord. It's that vertical connection that we talked about earlier, that the devil is seeking so hard to sever by distracting us with all of the things around us, the horizontal things. But our assignment is to trust in the Lord, to feed on his faithfulness and not worry about what's going on around us. Just a few verses down in verse 7, it says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Wow. Do not fret when someone else is prospering and you are not prospering. This reminds me of a story in John 21. So let's turn there. John chapter 21. Now remember, we just read, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. And now we go by the seashore where Jesus has just asked Peter, do you love me? And then he tells how Peter will die. And the next thing Jesus says is, follow me. I think that's pretty clear. Not follow your pastor or your best friend or whatever. Follow me. This is Jesus talking. Follow me. But what does Peter do immediately after that? He looks around. Uh-oh. And he says in verse 21, John chapter 21, verse 21, Peter seeing the disciple John says, but Lord, what about this man? What about him? 
Jesus had just told Peter how he was going to die, and now he's getting all concerned with how John is going to die. And he took his eyes off of Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus said, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his day. Do not look at the people around you and say, but Lord, what about them? They Tell me about them. What's going to happen to them? It doesn't really have anything to do with you and your vertical connection with Jesus, does it? It's a separate issue. They have vertical connections with Jesus. We have horizontal connections with them. But you follow Jesus. You follow me, says Jesus. There's a book that I really, really like called The Faith I Live By, written by one of my favorite authors, Ellen White. And she says in there on page 239, a company of believers may be poor, uneducated, and unknown. Yet in Christ, they may do a work in the home, the neighborhood, the church, and even in the regions beyond, whose results will be as far-reaching as eternity. That's amazing. And it reminds me of the 12 disciples. Remember Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot? They were a little bit invisible. They were a company of believers, just 12. 11 at the end because Judas committed suicide. So really only 11 devoted ones, poor, uneducated, unknown. And they did a work as far-reaching as eternity in their home, in their neighborhood, in their church, and even in the region beyond. And so can we. So can we. When you think of the birth of Jesus, how important was that event? Very important. Okay. You better believe it was important. This was God with us. Emmanuel, God in human flesh. What a mystery. What a cause for rejoicing. So how did the city of Bethlehem celebrate? Did they throw a baby shower that night for Mary? No. Did the people line up outside the stable to welcome the newborn king? No. The shepherds wouldn't have even known anything about it if the angels hadn't showed up and told them where to go and that something remarkable had happened that night. The angels could not contain themselves. They said, we have to tell somebody. This is so exciting. So they showed up in the sky and sang to the shepherds, and that's the only way they knew. When the wise men came to Israel, they came to ask King Herod, and he had no idea what they were talking about. And the people were astonished. When the king inquired of the scribes, they said, yeah, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But they didn't know that he had been born. Even our own Savior was invisible. He made a silent entrance into our world, other than the angels singing to some little invisible shepherds on the hillside. And how much of his life was invisible also? Unimportant, small, working with his dad in the carpenter shop, and 
going about his daily life, there was a very small portion of his life that was devoted to public ministry. Most of his work here on earth was small work, unimportant work to the onlooker. Have you ever felt small? Have you ever felt unimportant? As I was driving up here, I thought about an illustration I wanted to tell you. In our house, there's some really big picture windows, really big. It's bigger than that window between here and the kitchen. And invariably, when people come to our house for the first time, they talk about, what do you think they talk about? Well, you would think they'd probably go on and on about the window, but they they actually talk about something else. The view. Excellent. You can see the hospital from our house. You can see the mountains. You can almost see the Crestline Church from there, but not quite. (laughs) Yeah, a flag. That would be helpful. They talk about the view. They don't come over and say, my, what a beautiful window you have. Where did you get this glass? And, and it's, so, it's so shiny. How did you get it so shiny? They don't say anything about the windows. They're talking about the view, what they see through the window. Now, if the window were a person, he would probably be getting pretty offended by now with all the people ignoring what a wonderful window he is. At least that might be how I would feel if I was the window. But that's not the point of a window. A window is meant to be invisible. If you see the window and you notice the window, is that a good thing or a bad thing? A window is a good thing, but if you, like, notice it. What's the point? (laughs) Excellent. What's the point? Yes. Exactly. Have you ever been driving down the road and you think I really need to stop at a gas station and clean my windshield because there's so many bugs and it's so dirty I can't see out? Mm -hmm. Oh no! (laughs) Yeah. There's no purpose to it. It's true. And like Alicia said, if you have like shades over it or something, what's the purpose of having a window there? A window isn't meant to be looked at. A window is meant to be looked through. If it's dirty, you don't say, my, what a beautiful window that is. You say, oh, we better clean it because I don't want to look at it. I want to look through it. That's why we have windshield wiper fluid in our cars. That's why we have windshield wipers. We don't really like windows. We like looking through them. And windows, their purpose is to be invisible. The, the more clear a window is, and the better you can see through it, the better that window is. What if we are meant to be windows? What if the clearer we are, the more people can see Jesus in us? They can see what's on the inside, the things that really matter. We're told that we're temples of the Holy Spirit, that God himself lives in us. 
why would you want people to look at you and see the dirty window? Wouldn't you rather that they see Christ inside? Absolutely. I want to read a, a short excerpt from another one of my favorite books called Steps to Christ. And you'll find this on page 70. A power-packed word. A life in Christ is a life of restfulness. There may be no ecstasy of feeling, but there should be an abiding, peaceful trust. Your hope is not in yourself. It is in Christ. Your weakness is united to his strength. Your ignorance to his wisdom. Your frailty to his enduring might. Sounds kind of like a small, invisible person. Weak, ignorant, frail. But these things can be united to Christ, and then they're much. So you are not to look to yourself, not to let the mind dwell upon self, but look to Christ. Let the mind dwell upon his love, upon the beauty, the perfection of his character. Christ in his self-denial, Christ in his humiliation, Christ in his purity and holiness, Christ in his matchless love. This is the subject for the soul's contemplation. It is by loving him, copying him, depending wholly upon him, that you are to be transformed into his likeness. If you want to be a window, a clear, clean window, then you have to keep that vertical connection to look at Christ, to follow Christ, to not fret about those that are prospering in their way around you, but to seek that those around you may see Jesus in you. You may not be a Peter or a James or a John. We know lots about them. There's lots written of them in the Bible. You might be more like Thaddeus or Simon the Zealot. You may be small or invisible. You might never make it to the Hall of Fame or air on live television. You might not make it into the book of beloved Bible workers or the 11 elect evangelists. But what if your father does? What if your cousin makes it? Or your best friend? What if the devil will tempt you to covet their positions of honor, fame, or measurable success? Success can't be measured. We're so tricked by this term, success. There are so many different ways to measure success. And remember, God's math is different than ours. His measuring cups, his measuring spoons, his scales are different than ours. So we measure things. We say, oh, that person's a failure. And in Jesus' eyes, they may be the biggest success. So we're, we're still not sure what Thaddeus did, what Simon the Zealot did, or James the Less. They are still mysterious. They're still invisible, but not to God. If you think of the angels, most of their work is invisible. They do all sorts of things for us. There's angels here right now, worshiping with us, keeping us safe. There are 
times when they manifest themselves in a visible way, when we're really in trouble. But most of the angel's work is invisible. And most of our work may seem also to be invisible, but not through the eyes of God. He chose his 12 disciples to be a part of his inner circle that he may train them for a special, special work. And he chose you to train you for a special work. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And you are not invisible to him. So a little bit of review. Remember, if you feel invisible, God sees you. Number two, don't let the devil distract you with the horizontal and sever that vertical gaze. And number three, God chose those invisible disciples for a special work, and he chose you too. I want to share a song with you. I mentioned it earlier in the sermon. Little is much when God is in it. Listen and try to find your place in the song. child well done 
Our Father, we come before you because it is our desire to follow you, not those around us, not those beside us, but we want to look up to you. Help us to press on, like it says in Corinthians, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you have promised that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. I ask that you assure each person here today that you chose them for a special work. And even though nearly everything around us is luring us to sever that vertical connection, hold on to us. Keep our eyes fixed upon you. Invisible God, we may also feel invisible at times from a human standpoint. But thank you for seeing us right here, right now, our little church in Crestline. And we give you our two mites today. We give you our all. And we praise you. Amen.